Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and today I'm joined by an old friend, or a friend of many, many years, I should say. She's still a young friend uh, who I've known since, oh boy, over 40 years. Um, she is the recently retired uh, inaugural chief counsel at the, oh, the general counsel at the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the AIIB. But for purposes of today's discussion, she has just come out with the book called A Comparative Guide to the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is really a ground-level view of what is gone on at the, uh, at the bank. Why did you write the book? I wrote the book because I thought it would be useful in two respects. One, when I started drafting the charter for AIB, I called up lawyers from other multilateral development banks, not just World Bank where I'd worked, but the Asian Development Bank, the European Bank, and asked them about their charters and what would you keep, what would you get rid of. And they all said, and you remember this book Ibrahim Shahada wrote in 1990 about the European Bank, and I had that book on my shelf and I used it all the time. So I thought when I was done with the charter and setting up AIB, I thought it would, I've just been through this comparative experience, so why not write the book? So that was one reason. The other reason is because a lot of people think AIB is a Chinese invention, <laughs> and it is a Chinese-led initiative and international organization, but it's very similar to other ones. And I thought it would be useful if people could understand how all of them work and then see better what's AIB and what might be or might not be Chinese. Chairman Jin writes the introduction to your book and obviously asked you to be the general, the inaugural general counsel. Why did he choose you? I like to think because of competence. That he chose an American. Yeah. Well, who's had 30 years of experience at the World Bank, who I knew, well, I knew even before that, but when you were started at the U.S. Treasury. So I, I did two things in my career. I worked at the World Bank and knew a lot about the inside of multilateral organizations, and I worked on China. So the people in the Ministry of Finance, like uh, President Jin and others, I had worked with over the decades, like many lawyers, on the other side of the table. So you build up trust that way, which I think most clients value. The other thing is they'd seen me sitting at the tables that discussed governance reforms at the World Bank. So what could you ask for except trust and competence? How did, it, how did he make the offer? What was kind of, how did you suddenly, were you in Beijing? Did he call you in Washington? What happened? Oh, you know, I had heard from lots of people in the World Bank retiree sphere that the Ministry of Finance was looking for someone to help with this. And I said, sure, I'll be happy to help. Originally, I heard that there was going to be another bank. I knew there was going to be a BRICS bank, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And I heard it was going to be in Shanghai. 
So when I first heard this rumor, I thought, that's great, because I really haven't spent enough time in Shanghai, and this will be fabulous. Sure, I'll do it. And after I said yes, I found out that there was another bank <laughs> in Beijing. But it worked out okay, particularly since I'm based in Washington, and there are non-stops from Washington <laughs> to Beijing, and there are no non-stops to Shanghai. So you started as it a made consultant. A if I remember, you started as a consultant, and I basically, later became general counsel. Yeah, I was chief counsel for the negotiations, and then I was general counsel for about seven or eight months. But I was commuting from Washington and working, like most lawyers, 24 hours a day wherever I was. And I think one of the features of AIB that multilateral development bank people comment on is that it has a non-resident board, which is normal in many corporations and I think is a great idea. I think a non-resident general counsel is a terrible idea. I think you really need to be there. It doesn't matter where your clients are. Oh, we had the meeting at 2 o'clock. We know you were asleep, but there were no legal issues. <laughs> you know, if I'd seen the papers, there probably would have been legal issues. So, so better, better to have... You after commuting for eight months, that was enough. Yeah. When I found a wonderful successor, um, so that was good. Your book really portrays AIIB as a multilateral organization that is modeled on the World Bank, that the European... The construction bank and the um, the third is the the ADB maybe ADB and then the, the Inter American bank. bank. Why? And really goes into great detail on where you've drawn from these various experiences. Why do you think that's not a view shared by the U.S. government? I think the U.S. government probably understood. In that this was based on the structures of the other banks. I think they were concerned about what, what would happen within those structures. Um, and actually, the interesting thing... But you lay out a shareholding structure that makes it... The Chinese almost made it difficult for them to control, almost deliberately difficult for themselves to control, no? For the Chinese to control. Yes. It's, you could have come up with a lot of other structures if you wanted a bank that you could control. That's true. Actually, the voting power structure is very similar to the other banks. And you know, one of the criticisms by developing countries of the World Bank is that the US has a veto because mm -hmm. they have a 15% share. Uh, China at the moment has a veto over a handful of decisions at AIB. But it's a number. It's not a name. So. Other countries could add up to the same voting power, or China could reduce its shareholding. Why did the U.S. choose not to participate? I'm not sure if you think about the executive branch. I don't know if it was really a choice. Joining one of these banks requires congressional action, usually to both approve the treaty and to fund the United States shareholding. At the point when this was being discussed in 2014 and 2015, the U.S. administration wasn't able to get a lot of things passed through Congress, including the 2010 reforms at the IMF, which were important to a lot of people around the world. So I never thought it was feasible for the United States to join, not because of China or because of the bank, but because the U.S. wasn't going to be in a position to do that. And I think that part is probably still true. But there are lots of reports saying that the U.S. also um, leaned on its allies not to join. Mm -hmm. 
I've also seen President Obama's Rose Garden statement from April 2015 saying that's not true. So I'm sure the truth lies somewhere in between, as it usually does. The U.S. government maintains a very negative view of the AIIB. I hope not. But it does. I go into meetings and they, they view it as a projection of Chinese power that is not consistent with U.S. interests, even though I fundamentally disagree with that view. You think they, will this book inform them more at least about what the history of it was and how it's going to work in practice? I think the book will give a much better idea of what, how close it is and where the differences are and where the flexibility is from the other banks. But if what you care about is being the largest shareholder, the U.S. is not going to come in and be the largest shareholder. Non-regionals, which is what the U.S. would presumably be, don't hold more than 25 percent. And you know, there are already a lot of non-regional shareholders like all of Europe and some from Latin America and Africa. So I think it's about, you know, I think it's about control, mm -hmm. not about structures. In its operation so far, what percentage of the transactions have actually been in conjunction with the World Bank and the ADB? Of the 26 projects by number, I think about two-thirds have been co-financed with one or more of the other multilateral development banks, which means that about six or seven... Well, the other multilateral development banks in this area are basically World Bank and ADB. Is there, well, is there another? No, because they also lend to have operations in Central Asia, so mm -hmm. the European Bank for Reconstruction I and see. Development. So, so e there. EBRD is involved, the European mm -hmm. Investment Bank is involved. I see, so there's even more. They've, and signed, they've signed MOUs, with Memorandum of Understanding, with the Inter-American Bank and with the African Bank, because I think they expect to have some operations that will, in those areas, that will benefit Asia. Mm -hmm. I had someone in the U.S. government tell me that it was an example of China being what was called in the national security strategy a revisionist power. Does that make any sense? When you read your book, you kind of go, this isn't a revisionist power. I mean, this a revisionist... is building on the existing structure. You know, when, back when we were in law school, the Chinese would be viewed as trying to disrupt the international order to, you know, come into the World Bank uh, in order to turn it upside down. This is basically taking China's own experience in the World Bank and the ADB, which I think they view as having been beneficial to their development, and sharing it with others in a way that I assume benefits China's strategic interests, the same way that the World Bank and the Inter-American Bank and the European Bank, I hope, advanced U.S. interests, because as a U.S. taxpayer, the U.S. has put a lot of money in those banks. Two quick questions before we close. What was your most difficult moment and your most satisfying moment in this process? I think my most satisfying moment was when the chairman of the negotiations at the final session on the charter um, asked if there were any objections to the final text, and there was silence. <laughs> you knew as a lawyer you had succeeded. And my most difficult moment I mean, there was a point where someone wanted to do something that you plainly couldn't do under the articles, but 
I mean, it's difficult to say no, but it's easy to say no when you're right. <laughs> but it was difficult to tell them no. Was that a Chinese? I won't say. <laughs> Natalie has given us a taste of what is in this book, a comparative guide to the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the AIIB. And I think for those who really want to understand whether China is a responsible stakeholder in the world today, you should read the book to get a sense of the direction that it is going. Natalie, thank you for joining us today, and thank you for writing the book. Thank you, Steve.